uh, Newton Thomas Siegel, cinematographer here with director Brian Singer. But I'm I'm gonna call you Tom because that's please do because I I don't even for ten years it's worked. Yeah, Newton, Tom. Okay, uh, Tom and I have worked together on how many movies now? Four movies. Four movies, and uh, this is the first time we've ever done anything like this, so it will be, I'm sure, a little awkward. Um, for a when, mere moment. For a mere moment. Uh, Usually it's hand signals, but now we'll have to verbalize our communication. Yeah, over the years, Tom and I have developed a very... Uh, uh, it's a kind of uh, second nature, uh, unspoken language while working, so we can move through material a lot quicker and, uh, and a lot of mind reading going on. So what are we looking at here, Tom? These are the opening credits. Um, they may look like animation, but we actually um, shot it all live. It was very hard to make it look like it's animated. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was done by um, a great uh, friend of yours and title specialist, Robert Dawson. Robert Dawson, who did, uh, who's done the titles on uh, all our, uh, our films on uh, The Usual Suspects. He, he chose the font on App Pupil, I, I believe, and uh, even though we shot that sequence, and then on uh, X-Men 1 and X-Men 2, he created this concept, which is why I wanted to bring him back. It's kind of our version of a James Bond opening. And an intro right in, a circular theme, which you'll see in all your movies, going back to the coffee cup of Usual Suspects. Yes, and even a little before that. Uh, the water glass in... Uh, in public in access. Public access. Yes. So this scene, uh, the, the, the concept behind this scene was uh, ultimately to try to, uh, where the first uh, X-Men began in a concentration camp, uh, emotionally with some sense of history, this scene was meant to sort of uh, hopefully, wow people and launch uh, and 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 launch us into the story and introduce a new character, which is Nightcrawler. So to do it, uh, we ultimately, since there was no standing set of the uh, West Wing of the White House in Vancouver, we we ultimately uh, uh, Guy constructed it and uh, with uh, you know, quite meticulously, and it enabled us a lot of flexibility. Although we did do some doubling of sets just to expand the size of it. Talk a little about this. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing because you're dealing with a very familiar set that everybody's photographed a million times, and so we had to work pretty hard to try to give it a little different life and character, and a lot of that's with Brian's conception of Nightcrawler. And then with each scene we shoot uh, here, not only are, are some of these scenes, particularly the ones involving a lot of bamfing around and uh, fighting, like here done with moco camera or motion control cameras, but also uh, where the stunt is done on the sets. Very often the stunt is done on a green screen, and here it's done with wires and cables, and, uh, and then ultimately it has to be done in a clean pass, and then each separate action is done separately, the guy being kicked through the wall, uh, nightcrawler flying through the air, this guy throwing himself backwards without a tail existing because the tail is added later in some of the shots. Uh, in fact, in most of the shots, but there are some where an actual rubber tail is used. And then all that material is combined to, uh, to create this. Don't shoot!
See this element, some of this will be shot on a green screen, flying and then added later. And then these uh, guys flying around will be done separately. Uh, we didn't really know the blue smoke and the bamfing was going to work until very late in the process, uh, until Mike Fink basically came into my hotel room in Kananaskis when we were shooting up there and said, okay, this is where we are with the bamf. And I was like, okay. And then he, and then he played it for me, and uh, I was like, okay, I think we're getting there. And it's such a hard thing for these actors because a lot of what they're doing is doing it to air or imagining what something's going to look like ahead of time. Let's talk Speaking a little of about Kananaskis. <laughs> <laughs> we went to Alberta in Canada for this snow sequence. Um, we needed an area that's famous for snow because Wolverine travels up to try to discover his origin in an area covered with snow. So we, we picked one of the snowiest areas in all of Canada, which, of course, when we went there had... No snow. And as you can notice, way in the background there, you'll see where the snow stops and starts uh, on, you know, on, the, on the side of the lake, and that was where we brought in 40 tons of snow and then where it ran out. This, oddly enough, I shouldn't even admit to these things, but this was actually <laughs> shot on a stage in London. Six months after shoot, or three months after shooting, the, the amazing, that was shot on a stage yeah, in Vancouver. Vancouver. <laughs> the amazing thing was, we went all the way to Kananaskis for snow, and figured we'd have horrible shooting conditions. We might lose time. We didn't lose any time because of snow. There wasn't any snow. We lost time because of wind. We were actually yes. We shut had, this down. scene was about meant to be shot with. Uh, it was just impossible. It was about 100 miles an hour of wind that day. Also, but also we shot this in, on a stage because of the construction and the design of this and also shooting with a wolf. Where the, the wolves are the opposite of dogs. They are completely wild animals and very, very difficult to control. So even that small scene there was very challenging. We surprised Hugh Jackman. We, we put a camera here for the last take of this. It was his birthday when we shot that. And uh, we came out and the entire crew had evacuated the stage. This, uh, this is really just a big, empty room. Uh, that's used for uh, conventions and various, I, I believe there was a show of erotica there just before we were there. And we turned it into a museum. Guy Dias and, and uh, Brian sort of designed a whole kind of science center and um, all of these exhibits were brought in and placed and uh, this entire basic set was just an empty shell until we uh, dressed it. But it's fun and we were able to add things like a saber-toothed cat. <laughs> Um, which is obviously a nod to the first film, mm -hmm. and also uh, other little subtle things. There was one uh, outtake, which I think will be on this DVD, which has it's a lovely scene with Jubilee. Even the, even the architecture is kind of a nod to the first one, where if you look in the wider shots, you'll see the sort of X frames that look very much like the uh, place where Magneto and um, Professor X had their first confrontation. It's interesting. The day we shot this was the day I decided uh, formally that I was going to 
uh, kill Jean Grey. So uh, I asked her sort of on the spot to to take the scene into a different direction and, and him as well, and then we we kind of conceived this moment where uh, you know, dreams are getting worse and all these things sort of on the spot. And then after we shot the scene, I took her into the trailer and uh, uh, shortly after, I either that day or the next day, and, and told her what... Uh, what plans I had for her character, and she was actually very, very happy about that because um, I think it gave her something more to play. Let me explain also a little about what you just saw with the, uh, the 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 flashing around. Originally, we shot that in a sort of step, a step, uh, like step frame or step printing process in which he, he, he we shot it like four to six frames a second, but ultimately in editing, uh, we found that the it was more fun to actually. Um, use the fast motion whip wipes and create some kind of sense of it that way. So instead of going for the, uh, you know, that kind of strobed slow motion, it, the, the scene had more of a, a frenetic approach. So there's your X's. <laughs> Look at that, X's everywhere. This is the uh, introduction of uh, Pyro, played by Aaron Stanford, who I had seen in the film Tadpole. I thought he was pretty tremendous. Um... The other characters, I just cast the, obviously the characters from the previous film. Aaron brought a great energy to that, to that part, very different than we had before. Yeah, he, he, uh, he sort of played the darker, the darker edge to the character, which uh, ended up really selling, and I was really pleased to be able to sell his uh, evolution, his arc, where he ends up leaving with Magneto. Actually, I wasn't sure whether you know these. You, know, you, sh you have all these different ideas that you, know, you want to explore in the in a movie, different characters, and very often you don't always get to. Sometimes they just get lost in the shuffle, or they're not completable. You have to focus on the central story. So that was one that I was glad was was able to pay off. Here we had to um, take this set down almost absolute zero to freeze these people. <laughs> and then bring him back to life right after the scene was shot, which required a lot of safety. Now, these are all... Uh, uh, Lee Cleary, my assistant director, who's really brilliant, has basically said, you, you're going to need mimes to do this scene, at least for the people surrounding the principal character. So although a lot of these are extras who are basically standing still, we also had had a bunch of professional mimes like this gentleman who... who uh, who could surround the actors for tight close-ups, things like that. And they really work fantastically. I mean, obviously there are takes that the people are moving in, but we had enough to, to choose from. And it was done all very spontaneously, like running around, okay, everyone freeze, and then we'd run around with a steady cam. And then everyone, unfreeze! There you go. <laughs> That's a shot from X-Men 1, because we were so cheap, we couldn't build a new sign for X-Men 2. You, you told me it was an homage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, contrary to the uh, appearances, we, we, we still uh, operate under a relatively strict budget. But yes, it does expand over, over the sequels. This is one of the earlier scenes. One of the first scenes we shot, second, second days of shooting, I think. Yeah, um, yep, day two. This is where I, I told Patrick, I said, in this movie, I want you to speak faster. And he was like, wow, what, what? And then he did it really, really fast at one point. 
just to sort of show me up. And I was like, well, that's perfect. So I think that's the take. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is a, probably one of the more detailed Oval Office sets that have been built. You find that sets like for the West Wing and things like that, are, um, which is like my favorite show, are not necessarily um, usable for film. They kind of break apart when you take them off the small screen. This is the introduction of William Stryker and Mystique, for those of you in the audience that actually thought that we had forgotten that Senator Kelly died in the first film and that this was Senator Kelly. It's not. Yes, there are people who thought that. Um, but uh, w uh, I had seen Brian Cox uh, in Manhunter growing up and was a fan of his work all the way through uh, LIE, which I thought he was fantastic. And, and, um, and we had, I'd seen him in a play, and we'd had dinner some years ago. Oddly enough, I was introduced to him by the same person who introduced me to Kevin Spacey many years ago, uh, Gregory Cook, an actor friend of ours. And... Uh, and I had always wanted to work with him, and I was very stubborn about it. And uh, he came in with a southern accent the day of shooting, and I said, hey, why not? You know, it's, it's the same thing happened with Benicio. <laughs> they come in with a funny accent, you're like, oh, sure. Not a legend. So, uh, but it was very helpful, I think, to define him and differentiate him, because he's actually a Scottish, Scottish actor. Uh, differentiate him from Xavier and Magneto, who have these sort of mid-Atlantic accents. It gave him a little... little uh texture, a little culture. This is our new favorite toy, the uh, Fraser lens. It's not that new, but we tend to... <laughs> we pretend it's new every time we use it. Yeah, well, let's use that new... Let's use that new thing. If we'd been allowed to do our jobs... I was all panicked because that picture in the background was black, when in reality it was just a dark, not very well-lit painting. This is Cotter Smith, who looks, yes, a little Bush-like, but I do believe that when you make a film during a certain presidency, you, uh, you, um, you tend to emulate the look of the current president. It just is the way, it's just the way you cast. It's just right. always that way. This is, uh... Yeah, Kelly, uh, Kelly Who is, uh, another new character, playing Lady Deathstrike, and, uh... That was her introduction we saw earlier, where she's cracking her knuckles. It sort of um, presages what you're going to see her do with Wolverine towards the end when we discover the real complexities of her character. What's fun is with Lee Cleary, my AD, again, uh, off screen, whenever she cracked her fingernails, or excuse me, cracked her fingers, uh, he would take a, a plastic water bottle and go... <laughs> So, so for the, the sound first, effects. yeah, which was really outrageous and very funny every time. Yeah. Uh, actually, probably a lot funnier. I just think it might not have been believable if we left that on the soundtrack. She, was, I, she also has only one line of dialogue, and for some reason, I got into practicing her line of dialogue before every shot she did, so that uh, she really knew that one line very well by the time it came. I, <laughs> I know. Well, she she got the same torture. Uh, Rebecca had on the first picture. She got one line on the first picture. And look at her now. This is uh, Flea and Colossus. Colossus, uh, my casting director, uh, Roger Masundin, saw him in a gym. He is 21 years old and 6 foot 8 and uh, recruited him. Uh, when he saw him in the gym, did he have any aspirations to act? Or? Uh, I don't know. I thought he. Uh, I think he he thought about it. Right. He did have a resume. Yeah, 
But but that's not you know he didn't come in for a general call or anything. Well, I think we'll be seeing him again. Yeah, he's very unique, unique presence, and a really nice guy. The entire cast is probably the nicest group of actors one could work with, and very analogous to our usual suspects' experience in terms yeah. of uh, camaraderie and ensemble. Yeah, it is pretty amazing to have this many actors, this many different personalities on a set, and actually not have any single one where you're like, "Oh God, we have to work with him today." Mm-hmm. The the hairstyle on Halley's uh, wig got a lot of criticism on the first picture, so sat in a hotel room with Halley for half a day, going through different hairstyles and wig styles. Uh, it's very it's hard, you know, with the white hair on uh, mm-hmm. an African American woman, and, mm-hmm. and ultimately, we. Hallie, I remember I kept looking to other people, and Hallie just looked me in the eye and said, it's your decision. And I'm like, well, women's wigs are not things that I pick out on a general daily basis, so I said, you got to give me a little slack here. But I ultimately felt that was a better direction this time around. And as always, the story of my life, one of the most beautiful women in the world, I get to photograph with a white wig. Yeah, well... And Jimmy Marsden with She'll no eyes. Her. And Jimmy Marsden with no eyes. Jimmy, who's the, Cheek uh, acting. The, one of the funniest actor. He is an impressionist. I rate on the same level as Kevin Spacey and Kevin Pollack, who are both pretty brilliant impressionists. He's incredibly funny, and unfortunately in these X-Men films, he, he gets too little to do. This is a little... Uh, I wanted to have the Once and Future King in there for both... Obvious and less obvious reasons, obviously, because he was once and hopes to be the future king of his domain. I, the other reason is because it's a... Great, st- great book. Well, <laughs> My favorite as a kid. Yeah, and it's, and it's all about kind of evolution. You know, your, your destiny is not necessarily... things evolve devolution. Well, well at one point... With Merlin, with Merlin. Is it, yeah, Merlin turns him into a fish at one well, point. Well, Merlin starts at, the, at death and works his way towards his birth, and he can never remember... What has happened to him? But he knows everything that's going, going to happen. happen. Yes, and and that and that plays into sort yeah. of our uh, some cyclical things and some things that occur at the end of the picture. This was um, key story point here. Yes, the uh, ingestion of Stryker's evil fluid spawned from the spine of his son. This is basically the old set pulled out of pulled out of storage. Old plastic set, I think. I don't think we, we, we. I think this is one of the few things we didn't throw out. It was, you know, we had a. I think this was Guy Dias, our production designer. This was his first feature film, and it's a testament to. I mean, he did an incredibly brilliant job. Well, these, these initial it, sets were John Meyer designs right, from and, the first film, but ultimately, and yeah. and he, and and he was incredibly faithful, faithful, and yet yeah. ex, and yet found unique and different ways yeah. of doing them. And building them so that it could be more adjustable, like this Cerebro set, you could... Yeah, I mean, he did. He, he made some technical improvements, but he also, I mean, John set a look for certain things that you couldn't really... Cerebro is Cerebro, and it's really been established, as was, uh, you know, the downstairs of the X-Mansion, and um, and Guy was very faithful to that and, and really put his energy more into some of the newer sets and some of the... Uh, um, or, or in reinventing ways to build to, shoot to the, build the, the, the ones that already existed. Also, his yeah. task was much more daunting because not uh, not only did Guy uh, have to... Um, he had to almost build five times as many sets for maybe 
you know, a little bit, more, a little bit more money, but not much. Um, the uh, the way we do cerebro, you know, the how? Do you want to explain something about how all those? Well, it, 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 it it's kind of hard to you know it, it, these things are so complicated. It's hard to explain them as fast as they go by on screen. But cerebro is a a, a lot of different elements. There's actually only half of a cerebro built and we would move the walls around to the background depending on the angle that we would shoot when they go to find the mutants or the uh, or the humans all of those people had to be photographed individually and then they're composited with uh, all of the computer generated effects on top of them so it's very very laborious and, and time consuming um, but it's a pretty inspiring set when you're actually standing on that uh, ramp and you're surrounded by even though it's only a half of a sphere but a half of a sphere and you you do get some feeling like you're in there there's an incredible parabolic sound when yeah when you stand in the middle of cerebro you can hear your voice echo back to or forced back to you from all angles so it, it's completely a parabolic acoustic of effect depending on what's where you are and then the, when it was revamped for dark cerebro it had a different sound quality by the way inside cerebro when you see all those people uh, a lot of them are people we know, and you can't really distinguish one of them. I'm afraid the results will be the same as before. We had a deal. The mind is not a box that can be simply unlocked and opened. It's a beehive with a million different compartments. I have no doubt that your amnesia, your adamantium skeleton, and the claws are all somehow connected, but... Logan, sometimes the mind needs to discover things for itself. I promise you we'll talk again when I return. Oh, if you would be kind enough to watch over the children tonight. Scott and I are going to visit an old friend. I'm sending the coordinates of where the mutant seems to have settled for now. As soon as you find him, the X Jet was a set that guy really uh, ramped up from the first one, where we only had the tiny little part at, uh, of the beginning. Mm -hmm. By the he, way, this is when Senator Kelly turns into Mystique, because it's not really Senator Kelly. See, and this was stolen from an episode of The Twilight Zone, in which the devil is unleashed and walks past these pillars and slowly transforms into the devil. And I had seen that episode years ago, and I kind of used that as a sort of cheap technique to uh, to establish that Kelly was uh, actually a mystique. And uh, someone just came and sent me that episode for completely unrelated things the other day, and I watched it, and I was like, this is where... Anyway. Big intro here, Mystique. Yeah, that shot took five hours and was done with motion control and ultimately uh, the uh, glass is added later where she transforms behind it. And then this was a chance for us to again uh, put in some more of our uh, little Friends cameo names. names. <laughs> well, no, there are more uh, pieces of X-lore. Uh, I, I enjoy very much putting... Uh, putting in subtle X-Men. And if you freeze frame those, you'll see me and Tom DeSanto as security guards. 
which may have something to do with why he was able to break out. Yeah. <laughs> All of her eyes are digital, by the way. On the last movie, they were uh, Mystique was uh, a lot of uh, uh, contact lenses. I remember she was in the helicopter kicking Senator Kelly in the yeah. last movie, and Bruce Davidson, who plays Senator Kelly, wanted the glasses, uh, her contacts out so she could see him, so we took them out, and then she went to kick him and kicked him right, right square in the in face, the knocked face. him off the seat, knocked his glasses off, and I, I swear if it wasn't a supermodel. He, he might have been upset, but yeah, I think he found it actually somewhat erotic. Oh, yeah, big blue stain on his cheek. And for Rebecca, this was a lot more fun this time around. We got to have her ball, as you'll see soon playing more than just her blue self. The contacts were very irritating. Yeah, so that's why this time around we, we did it all digitally, but they, I think they work really well. You can't really tell. Can this sort of I apologize for any slurping sound of our yummy vanilla ice blended from coffee. From bean the coffee bean and tea leaf. And if you pay attention now, you notice, you Kelly's see, line is coming up. Oh, that's a gun. See, that's a plastic gun. But you didn't notice that, that she's going to use later. Did you get it? That was her line. Oh, I talked over it, I think. Garbage. And again, in, uh, in the spirit of uh, saving money... Instead of doing any weird camera tricks, we just used twins. Um, if you look, you'll see uh, in the graffiti it says, Nature Laughs Last, which is something that my friend Dylan Cussman, who appears in this film as well, once saw in graffiti on a, on a wall and told me about, and I thought that, that, that really sums it all up, you know? You know, we can say we can we can fight that we can protect the environment, save the earth, save humanity, save wildlife. In the end, it doesn't really matter because nature's going to be around a lot longer than we are. This was a real church in Vancouver, right near our hotel and right across the street from Tom Siegel's apartment. So you just rolled out of bed and came to work. Barely. This is my favorite location. The only time I ever was able to go home for lunch on a movie. And uh, it was. Uh, it didn't look like this. We dressed it to look like this, actually, and we had to be out of there because there was a... Church service. Church service, like, the yeah. next day. Now, what you can't hear on the soundtrack is me running around screaming at the pigeons, trying to get them to fly. This was done live on the spot. We actually descended uh, the stunt guy... Um, from the roof of the church, which was amazing. The church let us do that. Uh, I think our, our producer, Ralph Winter, had some pull with the church. And Gary Jensen, our stunt coordinator, had to get his rig up there. Yeah, and Gary's really, really fantastic with, uh, with, uh, with things like decelerators and, and, and doing weird cabling work, and especially in weird locations. But what's great about it is you don't, have to, you don't have to composite the character in. You actually have the real character falling in the real location, and all you do is rig removal. And as much, as you can, as much of that as you can do as possible, the better, because then you're ultimately... Because things that are composited ultimately still, even with today's technology, often feel composited. Um, and so if you can get away with using the real physical objects, 
uh, and just removed cables and wires, which no one ever knew were there in the first place, then uh, it really sells believability. And before you were in the White House, what do you remember? Nothing. I was here. I'd rather get him back to the professor. This was a bad day for Alan Cumming because he had to go in about nine hours of makeup to get those scars all over his body. Usually the scars are just covering his face. So he was not happy this day. But, uh, but it makes for a, a cool scene and a cool moment, which uh, pays off later between him and Hallie in the plane. Hmm, another circle. Yes, everything circles. You a circle here. These are these. Remember public? Oh, using public access. Yep. We did a shot like yes. this. Of uh, yeah, there's another circle. And uh, I had a discussion with someone today, uh, yesterday, who complained about the uh, the fact that we were watching this dream in second person. We're not seeing it strictly from his point of view, but I think some of the imagery of Wolverine um, being, you know being cut open and and uh, particularly at, at here going in the tank running through the cave which we see later um, are, are, are potent enough where where you you really do need to see him in his dream now look at the exit sign in the background something we were not able to remove from Royal Roads University where we shot a lot of this stuff so it plagues me president will address the nation For the White House assassin, following hundreds of can't sleep. Some new legislation. How can you tell? Because you're awake. Earlier this year. Right. How about you? I don't sleep. Science Museum are claiming to have experienced. This is kind of interesting. This scene ultimately, well, gets when it gets violent later. It was kind of interesting because. It's kind of a very simple little fight, but I think because the audience was waiting so long for Wolverine to, like a movie and a half for Wolverine to really do his kill thing, do his thing, do his thing. <laughs> that uh, it got a lot of excitement from uh, you know, early audiences. That's kind of a nice touch, too, like the idea of being able to use your power in a sort of practical way, you know, as yeah. opposed to fighting crime or something. And not just touching something. But yeah. If you look closely at the guard bringing Patrick Stewart into the plastic prison, you'll notice he's a little shy. It's none other than... Yes, this is a, that's me. But this cameo was not done out of narcissism, I assure you. We actually did not have a player that day, and there was a failed attempt at a cameo in the first X-Men in which I was to be a security guard, so I basically dug up my old uniform, which actually still fit and was still in wardrobe. And uh, I did it. Just but, like you did with Patrick. And I was also, that's my second cameo with Patrick Stewart, because I was in, uh, I had, an, I'm in Star Trek Nemesis for 19 frames, about... Uh, which was for me actually an amazing thrill because I'm a huge Trekkie. Did they let you fly it? No, but they let me stand at the controls and pretend to hit buttons, which is basically what I do 
Best. <laughs> In uh, earlier drafts of the script, Xavier and Magneto never met, and it and uh, and it was always a, a, an issue. But there was always never a chance to get them together, and uh, and. Uh, um, through a number of ideas that came from a number of different places. Uh, I think one idea came from Mike Hendrickson from 20th Century Fox, actually. I, I, I could be wrong, but uh, part of this idea, if not the the, the the origins of it, came from him and ultimately uh, evolved into um, one of my favorite scenes, which is kind of a vague scene that kind of crisscrosses their paths, their histories, their friendship, and and it is a moment that I think the audience likes, you know, r- really waits to see and is essential is, is these two old friends cut from the same cloth with very different points of view about uh, humanity and mutant kind and the relationship with one another actually together, discussing, you know, discussing Wolverine in vague terms, discussing Stryker and ultimately uh, betrayal. And it's cut against this scene. Now, this scene... Uh, was spawned from a scene that evolved later, which was a scene to have uh, Iceman kind of come out to his family as a mutant. And then we went back and did this scene, which established that Iceman's uh, family. Uh, family doesn't know that he's there. And, 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 and it also helps explain the universe, that some of these kids, their parents don't know that they're going to school, uh, school for, for mutants. I'll just be honest with this. I, I, I love the uh, design of the prison in Silence of the Lambs, and uh, one of my favorite moments is when the camera drifts up to those holes in the plastic when Hannibal Lecter is smelling uh, Agent Starling, and to have gas come through these holes is just sort of takes that concept a step visually further for me, but it definitely is part of the inspiration for that. And uh, I love these two men again trapped in this predicament. And then out comes the gun. This scene here is, uh, was a chance for Jimmy to do a little something more than uh, he's had to do in the past, where he actually got to be proactive in a fight. And it was also a way to sort of start to establish the, uh, uh, you know, the stakes for these characters. Otherwise, he would have been sort of left sitting there watching uh, Professor X get taken away. It's just great, too, the innocence of the kid, just the way he looks up at the soldier, like... Because, you know, and the rationale I remember talking about it was that he could be another mutant like anybody else, mm-hmm. and it's like... There's all little ways of close-ups, just trying to set, without going overboard, but his sense of uh, 
He just has an extra sense of hearing. He's not necessarily bionic, but but trying to take all those ideas. Oh, this was on the spur of the moment, by the way, this scene. Originally, she was going to get up and start running through walls, but I, that morning I said, can she drop through the bed? And everyone scratched their heads and said, whoa, give us an hour. And then they had to rig the pillow, mm -hmm. and they had and, and Gary Jensen had to figure out a way to do it with the rig. And... and uh, and um, ultimately, so it, it shows that even scenes, complex scenes, if you have a moment where you want to do something, you just got to do it, and, and talented people will figure out a way doing it. And this was a little scary with all these squibs going off. And again, this is that scene that just, uh, you know, I think uh, that was very funny. <laughs> Shoots the girl. Um, where uh, the audience had been waiting one and a half movies for this. And yet you did have certain violence restrictions. Well, yeah, the scene, uh, you'll see it in outtake. It, it, I, I like this full-on roar, and it was just too intense So uh, for ratings. I had to kind of break it up by cutting back to Bobby. But ultimately, it, it was a very Wolverine classic Frank Miller moment that uh, that um, unfortunately I had to cut into and go back to reaction to Bobby because of uh, ratings issues and intensity issues. While this, on the other hand, somehow made it into the cut. <laughs> Although the sound, we did, did took the sound down a little bit. It was a, a little severe. This uh, is what it is. <laughs> Another new character. Um, Daniel Cudmore, again, is the actor. That's six foot eight, and he is, uh, you know, we tracked him and then uh, laid the metal effect over his body. I'd like to do some more with his character, perhaps, in the future. This is another one of those tough things where theoretically everything, all the lights should be off, and yet you want to see what's going on, and they're all running around in the middle of the night. Yeah, ultimately, you know, they, they, they would probably cut the power in the school, but, you know, you, you, have, a, you have to sort of take some measure of license. And uh, instead, we, we use the Xenons, uh, both on the... Uh, on the, um, helicopter. Uh, the to, to mimic the helicopter lights and also on the actual helicopters used, and then also these uh, lights that were... How much did they cost, Tom? The, um, on the guns? Yeah, we built a bunch of, uh, uh, spent a few, about $2,000 on uh, flashlights. Um, Each. Yeah. That, that are situated on top of the guns to create, uh, but 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 they, they end up defining the... the uh, they became one of our major light sources. You sort of see them there, and you'll see them a lot whenever you have the soldiers. And it's a particular light that, you know, with a little bit of atmosphere, uh, it gives you a nice sharp beam. Here's one. There you go. <laughs> um, also, with the helicopters, I wanted s s these blue lights put on the helicopters to distinguish them from just ordinary helicopters. I sort of took that from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, these uh, kind of uh, track lights that were, that were used on the helicopters in the final sequence. And then this is the... Strikers helicopter, which isn't quite, it's a vert, it's called a vertol, which is quite amazing. Uh, they, they, they brought it to the office once and s set it down and, uh, and then t uh, did a uh, vertical takeoff, uh, extreme vertical takeoff, and the thing launches up 500 feet in the air in seconds. 
Uh, I've ne I'd never seen anything like it. And neither had uh, Ron Bleck, our, our, secret, our um, special forces advisor, who was in uh, Mogadishu, and he's, he's a very active uh, special forces guy. And he had never seen anything like it. And there again are the, the, the lights in action. And that's Hugh Jackman himself jumping off this balcony, which was one of the early stunts we did with him. Uh, He's a great physical actor. I mean, he really will uh, do just about anything and comes out of uh, uh, theater and dance and musicals and is extremely adept and eager physically. He's, he put a lot of work into his physique and his, the physical part of the acting. This is, again, a scene coming up that comes out of economic concerns, uh, I, I wanted to create a great, you know, moment between uh, Wolverine and his maker, essentially, and uh, and I thought uh, uh, a wall of ice would be a very simple economic way to do it. Uh, originally, the idea was going to be simply that the atmosphere would start to become foggy, and eventually, it would uh, there would be an wall of ice there, and it wouldn't cost me anything. But then. Um, then uh, ultimately you find out that uh, the only ice that's really going to look real is real ice, so we needed to bring in a two-ton wall of real ice filled with Primacord because it has to explode, which then started to melt. And then we required creating the ice wall, which again was more complicated visually than... But the, expected, the, the but practical ice wall is one of the most beautiful images in the film. It, I mean, it's really spectacular. And because of your lighting, um, the, the, because of the, the way, the way, if you look, the way Stryker is silhouetted by the lights. I mean, look at that. And, and you'll watch him, and because because you'll watch him dance his his silhouette will dance across the the wall here because it's actually being backlit by. See, it moves like that, and I could create this very. Star Trek Wrath of Khan moment <laughs> um, between these two. And uh, and it was only when I saw the silhouette that I realized this was possible. I didn't, until all of a sudden there he was in silhouette, and that's when I asked Hugh to put his hand up and, and, and meet Stryker's hand, basically at that moment, because I had no idea either would be silhouetted. I just, you know, and... and uh, Again, that's those lights. And that's the real ice wall exploding from Primacord. Oh, it was interesting, when we blew up the, uh, the ice wall, there was so much Primacord used because uh, it was so dense that uh, we had to keep our mouths open on the set because apparently when explosives go off nearby you, uh, the pressure can build in your system and do damage. So, so if you're ever near explosives, always keep your mouth open. Um, this is a, kind of a redesign of the ex-garage from the first film. This is an actual real garage that was modified. We put in some exotic cars and uh, our Mazda RX-8, which is a kind of a cool car. Why don't you explain how this was done in the spirit of yeah. economics? This is, well, it's not only economics, but if you really think about it, they're driving through the woods at night, and what are you going to see out there? Really not much. So we actually did that on uh, a stage um, with a lot of lights moving through uh, greens and trees and uh, the occasional practical light outside the window going. So. Yeah, see, when you see those white lights go by, they're actually little lights on a dolly track zip being pushed by guys. But it's... There uh, they go. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that stuff's so funny how yeah. it actually really works. 
And and probably more with more, you know, feeling and this is the kind of thing that had we actually gone out there and done it, it would have been less effective than what we have here. We really feel like you're driving through a sort of dark wooded area. Sit back. Where are we going? Storm and Gina are in Boston. We'll head that way. My parents live in Boston. Good. And uh, if you'll see now, there's a little lesser known thing. When Stryker walks in, comes out of the elevator, you see a little white piece of strip on that door. It says danger because that is the entrance to the danger room, which was built, taken down, and stored. <laughs> to be used later. Keep watching. All of these props had to be built, these special tools. and Yeah, Jimmy Chow, our prop guy, is really clever with this stuff and, and, uh, and keeps it kind of a mix of interesting, futuristic, and yet a bit retro. Because I think something about the comic book, its origin in the 60s, I believe needs to be acknowledged in, in a some way. Not in, in terms of camp or in terms of, uh, of, of, it, of it being uh, dated, but at the same time there's certain colors you'll notice even in, in the designs of the underground mansion, the, blue, the pastels and things like that that, are, that evoke the, the sense of the period in which X-Men was created. I think it's nice to have that. This was an actual anti-mutant uh, demonstration that we filmed. <laughs> now you will see something here besides uh, beautiful Rebecca Romaine Stamos playing herself but also all the foam in the beer is digitally created because it was never in continuity and it was nobody's fault but mine but uh, it was distracting and bothersome to me and since uh, got a lot of visual effects going in the movie why not clean up the foam so that's digital foam and I guarantee Which you there's like crap. <laughs> Virgin foam. Ah, uh, some people's favorite shot in the movie. Again, the snorkel lens. Couple of aspirin. A CD restroom. Apparently some friend of mine with children took their kids to see the film and got very uncomfortable. Oh no, Stephen Summers, who directed Van Helsing, was watching the film with his 70-some-year-old mother and his three-year-old daughter. And I said, you know, we play in a lot of quadrants, but you're really pushing the envelope there. <laughs> One of them is too young to have ever had a scene like this, and the other one's too old to remember it. <laughs> Oh, we have another blooper that you probably will not be seeing on the DVD. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we did a lot of humorous little bloopers making the film. We actually did have a lot of fun doing this film and, uh, and, and did a lot of goofy stuff. Some of it was a little uh, mature and some of it um, you will see. It was just in plain bad taste. <laughs> so this is early scenes in Stryker's underground base. Do you want to talk about how that was yeah, this constructed? Is, you know, this is a... a, a a real testament to Guy Dias, too, because this first 
um, set we're looking at, which is the cell where they're holding Xavier, I think is one of the most beautiful uh, um, sets we have. And it's very small, very simple. But it's just in the in the, the things like the scenicking, the shapes, the curves, the, the textures. Um, and Stryker's base was n not unlike the bottom of the mansion, was designed really to as much as possible emulate the notion of practical lighting where we guy and I um, you know with Brian's approval built all of the practical lights into the set so they were actually part of the set and then we would have them all on a dimmer board and turn them off or on depending on the uh, particular shot or the particular scene so there's actually a very minimal amount of on the floor lighting to create this look and I, I, I think it's a it's a really beautiful look we worked really hard to um, establish some colors for the Stryker's base, um, in part to sort of give a signature to Stryker, but also in part because there's a little bit of confusion with uh, real Cerebro and the illusion of Cerebro and everything, so that the audience would sort of know when they're in the base and when they're in different parts of the base, because there's a lot of complicated parallel action and running around. We we, we built the, uh, the, the uh, structure in an old Sears warehouse, which we outfitted uh, to to be, I believe, one of the largest sound, sound stages in North America now. Um, the the set was enormous and involved over 60 miles of cable and uh, enough You, you needed a bicycle to go to the bathroom. It's literally, yeah. if, if somebody had to go to the bathroom uh, during a scene, they would jump on a bike and have to go about a quarter of a mile to the other end of the set to go to the, the restroom. The best one is when you drove your rent-a-car through the soundstage and pulled right up to set, and I was like, I always okay. wanted a really privileged parking spot, and I thought, this is the first stage where I can actually just drive my car right onto the set. Now, this man in the wheelchair playing Stryker's son is Michael Reed McKay who I had already worked with. Uh, he played an emaciated uh, concentration camp victim in a shower scene in uh, Apt Pupil. Uh, he was also the body of the near-dead victim in the movie Seven. And he's a really great guy and uh, wonderful to work with and incredibly tolerant of difficult physical positions like the one he's in at this moment. Which looks simple, but he's actually being sort of jammed forward. He's got a, a thing stuck into the back of his neck. And yeah, there's a, there's a scene in Outtakes, and, which is fun, where he actually stands up and takes the halo off Patrick's head, and, yeah. and you see the stuff pour out of his neck. Meanwhile, at the Drake's. This is our Cleaver, Mort Cleaver scene. And... Uh, and this scene, originally they were going to go, in the early, early drafts, they were going to go back to a rogues family's house, but geographically getting them to Mississippi made no sense. So uh, it became Bobby Drake's family, and I think ultimately uh, uh, evolved into a uh, character story like Pyro's, like the flip side of Pyro's story, where, where uh, Iceman becomes a strong character and ultimately an X-Men. That's my favorite moment. <laughs> Hello? This is Wolverine's bout with technology. Yeah, he see things frustrate him. Uh, the jet, when it moves, he gets very agitated, airsick. Uh, uh, the phone, just, the, you know, the, he gets certain things. Automobiles, he's good with. He's a man of direct action. And this is, draws a little parallel between, uh, oh, and, and starts uh, 
Iceman's story and the sort of uh, Pyro's desire for the family, family that never the, had. he doesn't have. And um, sex in a time of AIDS. <laughs> Don't get too close. <laughs> never know what you'll catch. Actually, this is more like sex in the time of SARS. Again, in the, in the original comic, the, uh, there, there wasn't uh, the ex, uh, Professor Xavier's school for the gifted was uh, was more of a, a group of X Men in an X mansion. But uh, I decided early on uh, you know, to have the students, and that enables these kind of characters to emerge in future films. This is Wolverine's search for beer. <laughs> a never-ending <laughs> quest. <laughs> I was I was obsessed with the cat, and maybe it's because I wanted to get get revenge on uh, shooting with the cat's an apt pupil. But I I, I I was obsessed with having this cat in the movie and having it lick the claws and lick the frozen tea, and uh, and and even though it screwed our schedule up, I. It's one of the great that licking of the claws. One of the yeah, great it ended up being a fun line and uh, the... punctuating our trailer. And this story starts the more human side of our X-Men film. You're clear. There's something different about it, Mr. Laurier. Yeah, I was having a good day. No. no, it's not that. Sit down. No. Sit your ass down. What could it be? What are you doing? Yeah, Ty, the actor who plays the uh, the guard, actually gained like 40 pounds to play this role, which was very cool of him. But oddly enough, the name tag was on the wrong side since we had to flip that shot, so the name tag's actually CGI as well as all this blood and metal. We did try practically uh, pulling metal out of him, but it, it just stayed inside. He's now filled with iron, which is part of why he weighs so much. <laughs> this scene began... Uh, I had an idea where I wanted uh, Magneto to draw this uh, iron that Mystique had injected in him out of his body, turn it into one ball, and having the one ball slice apart the, uh, the prison, and then he was going to grab hold of the ball, and it would carry him across the chasm. Because, I, you know, having characters fly arbitrarily is bothersome to me. Ultimately, uh, 
we went with three balls because uh, it enabled two to be used as weapons and one to be used as a disc. It was far more elegant to have Ian step onto a flat disc of metal than it was to, uh, to have him dangling from one of them. So, um, when did you first know you were a... A mutant? Uh, and again, placing Wolverine in, place, in, in environments where he's uncomfortable has become a, a wonderful tool uh, in, in these films. In the first one, I, brought, I, I, I basically took a cynical point of view to the names of all the X-Men and their characters and had him come in and say, you know, Storm, Sabretooth, are you people, what do they call you, Wheels? Oh, which is a line, actually, that uh, Hugh wrote himself. Um, in this picture taking it a step further and throwing him in middle America with a family and a bunch of kids and away from Gene, who he loves, and and uh, away from the man who's the key to his past, and, and he, he couldn't feel more trapped. And I thought, you know, that's kind of the essence that makes his character evolve. This is also sort of the angry, jealous, and confused little brother syndrome punctuated by my cat. It's not my cat. Cinematic. <laughs> and this, you know, seems sort of an allegory of the uh, the classic coming out to your parents scene. Except in this case, it goes terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. The newly improved X Jet. Nobody's responding. I can't get a signal. In the first movie, we had, what, like one little scene in it. Yeah, a much then smaller we, plane. Here we had pages and pages, so thank God that guy designed a much more significant set here. Again, you'll notice in all the sets, a lot of incorporative lighting. Uh, you know, I, um, I personally am a big fan of the sort of Kubrickian style of uh, source lighting as opposed to conventional stage lighting, and Tom and Guy work really well together, and... Uh, I mean, the light sources be seemingly natural. And even worrying a lot about reflections in eyes, for instance, making sure that you aren't always seeing the crew. And this, uh, this was an example of this is a very intimate scene between Nightcrawler and Storm. and it, it was one where we tried to use the practical lighting to kind of shed light on him and yet keep him a little in shadow, keep him a little mysterious because she's just sort of trying to figure out who he is and get to know him. And... We didn't want it all to be just right out there and obvious yet, so you kind of see these tattoos and this strange configuration as he leans towards the light and then he'll lean away from it and then you're in shadow. And So you, it's not just all out there. You have to kind of discover him a little bit, just like she's trying to discover him. It's fun part about some of these sets are as well that uh, there's a lot of little detail, little things written on walls and panels like on the that back panels you never go back there because it's basically a flat but it says uh, instead of SUV I think it says XUV like that kind of stuff and her white hair is of course a uh, a, a, a lighting nightmare because uh, when you have a scene like this where you're cutting back and forth between behind her and in front of her and that white needs to always sort of be the same color you're, you're really in for it the Drake House.
scene was shot in a little community outside of uh, Vancouver. We sort of took over a cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. And the neighbors next door were real sweet. They made a little sign saying, Welcome, cast and crew of X-Men. And they hung out, and the little girl next door ended up canceling her trip abroad to watch a shoot. So I brought them in a couple of times to watch, uh, you know. Which can be really boring. I mean, if you've ever actually been on a movie set after the first 20 minutes, it gets really boring. But these people got a show. Yeah, they get, well, they got to be in it. <laughs> the they mom got to be in it, and, and you're about to watch why they got to see a real show. Well, yeah, normally there's a lot of talk and a lot of waiting, but in this case... Uh, we got to blow things up. Yeah. You're going to see a, a moment, actually, well, coming up pretty soon we, we, with our first stunt. It's, it's, this is kind of those scary moments. The woman who's got her gun trained on um, trained on Wolverine. Uh, that police woman? Yeah, this one uh, here. She actually gets hit by fire and then she rolls backwards and really lands on her head and, and went unconscious for a moment. And I, of course, this is the first stunt we did on the show uh, and I was freaking out. But then she's fine and then the next day we were she was our uh, fighter jet pilot, and uh, and uh, and again another guy got engulfed by fire, and you know, and his arms heated up. But then you'll see him here. He, he doesn't get pulled out quite fast enough. Uh, not these gentlemen. That's artificial fire right here. Bang, and then whoop, he gets oops, yanked out. Um, but again, you know, he's back the next day. I mean, these guys are pros. That's the. Uh, Car sort of spinning around. Now this was you, Tom, inside of a yeah, police car, there. and that car lands right next to the yeah, camera. Yeah, wasn't was, supposed to do that. Yeah, it was supposed to blow up out of the way, but the uh, stunt woman, uh, uh, Melissa, she turned, she turned out of the way fast enough to avoid the car with a live cannon in it coming down and landing right on top of you guys, which was. I, I remember that because when I got out of the car, everybody was all freaked out. But when you're shooting it, it's like there's this. When you're looking through the camera, there's this kind of. Uh, you know, feeling of invulnerability that is completely artificial, and you're just looking through and say, oh, there comes a car crashing down right in front of me. Cool. Because you don't realize, because it's all through this glass, through this square. I did the same thing. I was shooting, doing, like, I was uh, no big deal. shooting a commercial in a helicopter, and yeah. we were crabbing over the ocean at 10 feet off the water at 60 miles an hour following cool. a yacht, and I'm staring at the monitor, forgetting that I'm actually in this Inches away from crashing. Helicopter. <laughs> So this we we had a helicopter we had a twin star helicopter come down into the street to create the wind to, uh, so there would be some interactive uh, wash coming on those trees and then we obviously put the jet in and remove the big fans. That's because we couldn't actually land the, the jet there. Yeah, we, could. we wanted to, but there's a lot of permit restrictions, so we could only fly the X jet in certain places. You can land jets horizontally, just not yeah. vertically. We used to take the X jet out on the weekends a lot. Remember, take it out for spins. Yeah, I want to be paid an X jet time next show and this was again separation of the family and the introduction of Nightcrawler to this group now, sometimes you forget when you're juggling so many characters you, they're all crossing each other's paths and, and you're trying to establish them and, and make them interesting, humorous but most importantly believable 
And uh, again, this is, you know, instead of having the jet take off and spending the money on that, we just play it in a close-up on Bobby and you get more emotion out of it and save about $100,000. This was nice. Unfortunately, originally this scene, um, he actually uses his power to uh, breach the controls uh, of the of the halo and and get uh, and and be released by um, by mutant one four three. But it it was actually so convincing to the audience they actually thought that he did escape, and uh, and unfortunately uh, it, it confused people. So I cut it. But it's on the DVD, I think. I see a little scene I'm proud of. Um, so instead we launch straight into what's clearly an illusion. I don't know if you'll notice the the eye color on these, you know, uh, on the girl. And the way we shoot with contacts, we always, uh, even though we're shooting with contact lenses, we have to go in digitally and remove the edges of the contact lens so that they don't look like contact lenses, so they're seamless. See, there's a, a rule, you're not supposed to swear around kids when you're working, and every once in a while, you know, you're working, and you say the wrong things, and I remember uh, uh, anytime someone would swear, the little girl, she would she would charge us $5. So, I think yeah, I ended very up... very wealthy. Yeah, on the set. And again, this is the... the uh, the woman who was the cop is also the, uh, the f uh, female fighter pilot speaking through the radio and apparently we did a little research and found that we're the first uh, American movie to put a woman in an American fighter aircraft in a movie. Even if it's not a real <laughs> F-16. Repeat, lower your altitude to 20,000 feet. This is your last warning. It's funny, when I choose aircraft, I don't always go for the most sophisticated and the most current aircraft. It's like, uh, it's like the, the choice of automobiles and the usual suspects. I try to find things that will ultimately be more classic and place the film not in any specific time uh, or, 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 or overly contemporize the film. To me, that's more important. So I'll juggle up, you know, we'll use Hueys instead of Blackhawks in terms of the helicopters because Hueys are actually more traditional and Blackhawks are more of this moment, you know, are more contemporary. And likewise with the planes, we use these classic, you know, the more classic of fighter jets as opposed to things that are more of the moment, of the Gulf, of Gulf War II or of Afghanistan or things like that. To achieve this scene, we basically had uh, a giant, very aggressive gimbal where we put half the X-Jet, the front half of it, on the gimbal, so the so anything you see out down the back of the second half of the X-Jet on the interiors is replaced uh, CG. That way we could create some real movement for these actors to experience, but the, the gimbal was so aggressive that they had to be strapped in, because if, if the actors weren't, they would they could be killed. It, it's, that, it's that intense, and then uh, and when in fact the jet opens up, we hit them with about 120 miles an hour of air. So then it became a struggle to keep Hallie's wig on her head. Um, you know, uh, because these are not strikers' men chasing them, they're strikers, uh, uh, you, know, you know, 
agents of the villain. They're actually just soldiers out on patrol in their fighter planes, scrambled to intercept a plane. I enjoyed showing them ejecting and surviving um, because I felt that, you know, like the police in front of the Drake house, they were simply law enforcement people on call. I, didn't, I don't think they should be victims of the X-Men. When you get into Stryker's lair and the Stryker's soldiers, even though they're kind of victims of circumstance, their actions are more villainous and I felt more comfortable in having them be casualties. This scene, you know, was uh, uh, designed to show Jean's expanding power, so um, you know, her evolution begins here the first missile, but there's still, uh, there's still a deficiency. She's still not strong enough, and, uh, and the final missile gets her. Here's where you can really see that gimbal at work. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that, that, the kind of physicality you get from the actors, you can't just get from moving the camera. That's really Anna Paquin getting sucked out of the plane. That's, she's doing all her own uh, wire work there, and then it's comped in. Wrong free diving. <laughs> and, uh, this scene began, actually, the original idea uh, came from a commercial that Zach Penn showed me that uh, involved a, uh, a plane that, um, or no, a car that gets blown apart and then reassembled as a newer model, and uh, that kind of was the impetus for this idea. Although, plane getting reconstructed and uh, Magneto saving the X-Men, but only for his own selfish reasons. That's the reason I kind of accepted the, 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 the tagline, X-Men United, because they are united with Magneto, but it's an unholy alliance, and, uh, and I felt that, you know, if it was too much on the nose, it would be kind of boring, but the fact that it has a kind of rhetorical <laughs> implication... Originally, I wanted to have the tail there, but it cost too much. I don't see anything about his makeup, about how you got his... Uh, well, his makeup came from enormous amounts of tests, and eventually, he, those are actually angelic symbols. Uh, sort of a, um, an offshoot of early Christianity. And... Uh, came from trying to add some dimension to his face. I mean, ultimately, you know, it, it, these films, ultimately there will be in some t at some point CG characters, but for these characters it's nice when you cast really fine actors uh, like uh, Alan Cumming to actually let some of the, uh, the character of the actor come through, and, 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 and you can do that in sometimes just simple makeup, even though it isn't so simple. It still takes Rebecca about nine or six hours to do her makeup and Alan but about... Simple compared to CGI. It's consim yeah, it's simple yeah. crafting a character in the computer, which is, is difficult. Mr. Stryker has powerful methods of persuasion, but even against a mutant as strong as Charles. This scene was shot out in the woods near Stanley Park over a couple of long nights. And... Uh, it was nice, though, because we had all the actors together, even though it's a night shoot. Night shoot outdoors can get a little tiring, particularly around the final hours. And then, and then just when everyone's really exhausted, you're fighting the sun, which is coming up. And so you're, you, you find yourself accelerating 
as the evening is uh, coming to an end. Especially when you only have like a few nights because then you have to like get into a night rhythm and then right back into a day rhythm. We didn't shoot as much nights on this film because we did a lot of interior stage work, so that means we could shoot during the day. It wasn't bad. The first film was like a month of nights. This one was only a couple of weeks, but they were sometimes interspersed, which really throws your schedule. And then I like to spend about uh, a couple hours in the editing room every night, which combined with doing rewrites on Sundays and sometimes doing rewrites on set, in fact, more than sometimes, creates uh, a lot of fatigue. Had to bring in that tree for him to hang on. Yeah, we couldn't hang him from a real tree. So it's all these little things you got to do that people take for granted. They assume, oh yeah, just throw an X jet and a yeah. guy up in a tree and uh, some tents. Strikers at Alkali Lake. That's where the professor sent me. There's nothing. Left. I first saw Alan coming on the stage in Cabaret uh, a number of years ago in New York, and thought he was really terrific. Definitely had the German accent down pat, and then uh, he had done a number of films that I'd seen after that, and always wanted to work with him. He wasn't available at first. We had looked at a number of other people, and then finally he became available, and, uh, and I cast him. Originally in this scene, uh, Wolverine and Jean Grey were not supposed to kiss. They were going to sort of talk about their relationship. And uh, it occurred to me that morning that they, they never really had much of a relationship to talk about, and, and I... I felt that they really needed to act on it. They needed to start forging that relationship right there and then. So we actually shut down and everyone sat around for like a couple hours while I kind of paced up and down across the uh, the clearing where we were shooting and eventually said, you know, they should just kiss. And then all of a sudden everything everything made sense right up until the, uh, the final scene after she's gone. And what was nice is we played it all for the most part in one take. Well, until we cut. <laughs> and Lauren, Lauren uh, suggested that we, uh, my producer Lauren Schiller Donner suggested that you know he be a little lighter in the scene, and 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 so I gave him a little adjustment, and it was really nice. He 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 just kind of showed the sweet side, and it was only after shooting this scene that I went back and watched Empire Strikes Back and saw a curiously similar scene, which I had forgotten about consciously but must have remembered in my subconscious where Princess Leia is uh, helping fix the Millennium Falcon and uh, Han Solo tries to seduce her with his bashfulness. In, in the comic book, uh, these two characters are related, uh, Mystique and Nightcrawler. I don't want to get into that kind of complexity in soap opera and in the films it's a little difficult to explore so instead I do it in moments like this just give them a scene together show their similarities show their differences and show that they there is some kind of connection between them uh, to me char capturing the essence of the characters is is every bit if not more important than worrying intensely about the lore you know if the essence is there Wolverine's search for his past these relationships they have with one another and their physical, uh, the physical nature of the characters as well, and the powers. I feel that you know the their relationships, all the stuff from the comic book will will, will come in come in the subconscious, so to speak. Now that was a little overly philosophical. I better stick to the basics. <laughs> <laughs> Guy on girl. It's this is pretty basic, <laughs> with a twist. 
Yeah, this scene was originally uh, um, my attorney uh, asked me if there was a way that I could get Hallie and Hugh to have sex in X-Men 2. And I said, well, they're not with each other in the picture. And I'm like, well, what about Rebecca? And I said, well, I don't think she's his type, Mystique, you know, with all this. Well, can't she be anybody's type? And I said, well, that's true. And that's how this scene was born. And then eventually it was, it was also about uh, what Wolverine's real desires are of that moment. Sex with Stryker. <laughs> I want you to get out. Also, this scene, uh, originally the line was, um, I love what you've done with your hair, because in the first film it was Magneto's machine that caused her hair to have a white streak in it. But then Ian said, can we do it this way? We love what you've done with your hair. And I thought it was kind of funny, kind of catty. You know, again, Magneto and Mystique have some kind of relationship. We don't know what form she takes when they're together, but they do have some kind of relationship. Striker. <laughs> Want to talk about lighting, corporate lighting? Uh, well, the the X jet, not not unlike. Um, well, I'm talking about the fire, more like when we have blasts oh, okay, and fire yeah. and lightning and all these. Well, yeah, when when you're creating visual effects, and a lot of times when uh, part of the visual effect is not actually going to be there when you're shooting practically. In other words, a lighter maybe moving across thin air or something like that. Nonetheless, you have to take into account what would happen with the light. Like here, when he has the flame in his hand, there would be light given off from that flame. So it's important that we work with the visual effects team to provide that kind of interactive light that when they then put in their CGI model or whatever element they're adding to it, that the um, interactive light is something that marries those two elements together and makes it more believable. My favorite film is the film Jaws. And you'll notice the they put uh, little teeth, shark's teeth, on the side of a pyro's lighter um, as my sort of homage to that film. So when my production company's called Bad Hat Harry because there's a line in the in the film Jaws where he says, "That's some bad hat, Harry." <laughs> when John assembled this scene, he assembled it a little differently than I thought it would come out, and it ended up being quite funny to me. Watch this, this little. He's, he's just typing. He's actually not really looking at the kids. Yeah. He's typing something in the computer, but it looks like he's torturing the kids for. That was kind years. of an interesting shot that we just had there. Is when we actually um, uh, the shot where the camera starts above the X jet and comes down to show the 3D map. Actually, above that. X-Jet was just set and if you remember one day we were just sort of fooling around in one take and started we were on a crane and, and we just started up above and, all, and it was actually photographing all the lights and stuff like that and when you saw it you thought well that's a cool idea and then that gave you the idea of putting in the exterior above it. But 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 it also served a story device it showed their proximity to the, to the dam which was very important for right. later in the picture so by having done that on the set for fun we ended up having a great device to show where the jet Geography. was in relationship with the dam, which plays into the end of the picture when, when uh, you know, the dam's coming down. 
this was funny when uh, the chairman of the studio I, I ran some uh, scenes for him he was up there uh, in uh, Vancouver he he saw this scene this uh, giant tunnel that Wolverine is in and he, he said uh, where'd you shoot this and we said well well we built it and he went oh <laughs> <laughs> with my money <laughs> That's Dylan Cussman, by the way, an old friend of ours. He was in the movie Dead Poets Society, um, a really terrific actor and a writer, and uh, uh, he came out to do this for me. And uh, An originator uh, of the line. And originator of the line, Nature Laughs Last, and also of the concept with Chris McQuarrie for The Usual Suspects. It was him and Chris that were talking about it online at Sundance when they thought, wouldn't it be neat to have a movie called The Usual Suspects with a poster of five guys in a lineup? This was quite a large part of the set. These there were three, uh, three sets of doors, all moving separately, and all these things were interconnected. And all these lights could be set up to operate at any time, as Tom was explaining earlier. That it enabled us to move from set to set much quicker, and ultimately save, save more than it cost to build it. This is also where you see a little bit of the color coding. Um, you'll see how the the hallways have kind of a moss green look to them, and the uh, cerebral has its color, and then the control room where they're looking at all the monitors has its color. So it was just a way to sort of help the audience a little bit as they run around these corridors and go from room to room to give them some kind of geography about where we are. And you see here, there's a little different color. Oh, okay. Let's see what I mean. Yeah, um, you notice Mystique giving the middle finger. She slides out. It was a little dark in, in the initial take, but since we already had to do some... CG fixes, we were able to brighten up the profanity. Can you override the spillway mechanism? Everything's controlled from inside that room. That's why the doors are so thick. Oh, really? Get some charges. Blow the doors open. There's a lot of innuendo in the film constantly, a lot of seductive and sexual innuendo. You know, she's good, you have no idea, you know, all these things playing on identity and, uh, and uh, people's relationships. It's also another way to show that she's really good with computers. Well, there's that. So that we, we have uh, Ron Blecker, who's uh, our special forces advisor, which was uh, a really great thing to have. He was actually uh, in the real Black Hawk Down incident in the movie. Oh, this actor here, his name is Richard Burton. I love that. But uh, it's really good to have, um, to have, a, to have somebody who, who can organize the troops and run them like troops. And, and although we do take certain cinematic license, we, there's, there's certain things uh, in terms of uh, realism, the way, ways of handling weapons and equipment that, that these guys know. And... Uh, I found it very helpful. Meanwhile, in Xavier's mind... And this was a real challenge, to keep, to, to do something this layered and complex and yet have the audience understand it. And where the hell we were at this moment. Well, again, key visual cues and Patrick playing it in a very ethereal manner convey the stuff. Uh, you know, it is very uh, taunting. You don't want to get overly complex with these things. Basically, the simplicity of 
a story, particularly a fantasy story, is very uh, is sometimes more significant. Uh, it's the, sort of the Star Wars formula. It's all you know, get the plans to the rebels, defeat the Empire. It's kind of simple. And here, when you, I, I try not to mire myself in in, in complex storylines, and yet. There are still things about illusion world and real world there that I'm constantly juggling with. And these kinds of movies, you know, screens always help a lot in, help in, in, in defining geography and uh, what's going on. Maps. Holograms. Can you shut it down from here? No. Come, still time. Not without us. Oh my God. It's the old trick. Kurt, will you come with me? Where are you? I'll be in the hall. Then you'll fall in love with me. Sure. Okay. We'll get together. Where's Logan? Come on. You, set up a perimeter. Now, our, our second set, uh, Dark Cerebro, was kind of the regular Cerebro that was uh, aged and remodified. So we had the same structure, we were shooting in the same area, but it, had, it was completely revamped uh, to show that Stryker had stolen key components from the panel, from the uh, infrastructure, and then, and then situated them in a, in a, uh, a makeshift device that he built himself in the base. And I like uh, Brian Cox wrote the line, uh, time to bring it to an end. I felt that summed it up. And here we're jumping realities, you know. Uh, Xavier in his own mind, Xavier in the real room. 143 as little girl, etc. This is a nice opportunity, though, to be able to photograph Cerebro and so many different ways, different textures. Yeah, in fact, lighting, I think, plays a key role in terms of knowing where we are, and, and we are constantly, whether it, when Cerebro is functioning in the red lights and the white lights, in reality, in the fantasy, there was always, uh, it was ever-changing. And, and when you're having so much drama take place in such a confined environment, lighting becomes a key set-changer. nice to be back with John Ottman again in terms of uh, editing of course and the scoring of the film um, he maintained you know he was all he was he was he was respectful of the first film but yet 
elevated it to create the uh, a, a lot of really terrific themes. Do you want, do, since a lot of this is uh, the, people the, running around yeah. and stuff, the, do you want to explain more, a little how we... Yeah, the, the, the more uh, something is visually uh, visual effects dependent, the more that uh, Brian and myself and storyboard artists will pre-visualize because you need to know how all of the elements are going to fit together. But then you also have a kind of choreography like you're seeing in this sequence in the hallway with um, the confrontation between Dream Grey and Cyclops where... Um, it's much more uh, sort of kinetic physical action that doesn't require as many visual effects. And there, it, you know, it's really, um, you know, Brian and I, I think have evolved a style over 10 years of working, and it, it always starts with basic character, with what is happening with these people at this time, and, and that sort of is what dictates where you want to be with the camera at any moment, whose point of view you're telling the story from. One of the things that I think people looked for in X2 is an even bigger scale and bigger sort of epic quality to it than we were able to do in the first one and for that we built a lot of sets but we found one set that really served the story well uh, that we never could have reproduced and this was an actual um, uh, early 20th century generating dam a hydroelectric um, uh, power station that we was had been converted into a museum and still had all the turbines in there and we were able to actually film in there and um, shoot a set which was on a scale that we never ever could have built it was just enormous and it was funny because it was all painted bright colors and you know make it conducive to a museum and then guy dias aged the whole thing down so much that when the woman came back from her vacation and saw what he'd done to it she thought he he destroyed all their restoration they had taken three years to do so she started to freak out and tremble and pick up the phone and he had to hold her hand down and put the receiver down and say please don't call anyone we'll have it back the way it was in three weeks it's funny this, because we basically had to restore it to the way it really was where they spent <laughs> yeah, we were, years turning it into something and they that didn't was even know what pristine. it used to look like either we yeah. had we got old history books to find out the what the colors were and then sort of fit them into our scheme um the scene where uh, she's going up against uh, Cyclops is under the control of Stryker through his uh, drug, so he's got the dark circle in the back of his neck, and uh, uh, she sort of repels his blast as kind of the next stage in her evolving, in her evolving power, her awareness of things. This is, I call this the Captain Nemo scene. This is where the sub is is <laughs> going down. Striker's yellow submarine. With Cerebro, uh, uh, the powers uh, were not only more expanded, but more uh, delineated. His connection with uh, people all around the world. It, it, these people are kind of gods in a way, and yet Xavier, you know, by his nature, is constantly lassoing he and his uh, his his students into humanity and trying to you know defy their godness and uh, magneto on the other hand has has embraced it when he says to pyro you know you're a god among insects never let anyone tell you different this was a fun set this was uh, this augmentation lab and uh, as you may have noticed the the uh, scratches from wolverine you know 
an essence of what had occurred here, his past. This was this was one of my favorite moments: is uh, him confronted with uh, his rebirth place, and I think a, a tremendous challenge of lighting. No, this was I think this is probably my favorite set to light in the in, in the whole film. I mean, we had a lot of great sets, but this one just had so many opportunities for great angles and textures and uh, all of which spoke to his sort of angst and mystery. And in spite of my bad neck, it it had a a lot of vertical qualities <laughs> to it. A lot of height so we could yeah. you know, shoot in different perspectives and when it came to choreographing the fight sequence and you know really take the camera all over the place and yet, you know, make it feel like it was, uh, like there were, uh, every, every turn there was a nook and cranny that uh, you hadn't seen before. That's always a challenge on sets because, you know, rarely do you have a ceiling on a set so you have more opportunities to light and yet you always, uh, you know, want to have these dynamic low angles that show the ceiling. It's a funny moment when Hugh was running naked through that cave. Uh, the first take we did, we did a practical joke and removed the walls off the back of the cave so when he rounded the corner, uh, all the women involved in the production were standing there waiting for him. And they went, woo! He wasn't ashamed. Mm. No, he they was were quite, very happy. Yeah, he was quite... Uh, he's quite the... Man. Theater actor. The um, the autopsy table in the background behind Stryker was modeled after the one in Auschwitz. It's very uh, eerie. This is one of those great opportunities where you basically have you know an action fight scene, but you, you, there's there's a lot of character in here and and humor even because this is the first time he's been kind of like, wow, um, maybe I'm not so unique and I can't believe that there's something kind of like me. Yeah, again, Wolverine in a predicament like, you've got to be kidding. Like, why am I here? How did I find myself in this mess? And that's sort of the reoccurring theme of Wolverine's journey. You know, just when he jumps out of a really hot frying pan, he's into the fire. This is done with a series. We used a number of things. Uh, I, I finally got to work with... I, I, I was a production assistant on a low-budget film called Street Trash, which was directed by Jim Muro, who has since then become one of the top Steadicam operators in the world, and he came in to do some uh, fight sequence Steadicam work on this. And it was fun to finally work with him after uh, many, many, many years. There's a shot earlier where we have the camera all the way up in the ceiling, we come rushing down at the actors on a cable, and uh, it's interesting because usually in those shots you can never make it come to a dead stop, so it kind of comes and then bounces, and Ordinarily, you would cut out that bounce, but John and, and Brian kept it in because it has a really much more kinetic feel, actually, when you see the camera kind of, like, flying back from the impact. Yeah, John and I have had a history of using our mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this scene had a much more vulgar incarnation earlier when she gets sort of punched in the crotch, or at least that's what it looked like, so we had to cut that for ratings issues, but... Uh, Another thing Jim Muro used, which is interesting, uh, he is a mini steady cam that weighs about 18 pounds and can move very, very quickly with the actors if they should turn and twist um, in ways that cameras normally can't move, provided you're shooting without sound because the thing is very loud.
One thing I promised Guy Dias I would, I would do is shoot the, the full extent of the sets. You know, every angle, every cranny. So constantly, you know, by, by the time I was done, I had to do this all the time. I try to, you know, if I'm in a good location, I try to make sure the camera sees it all. You know, you only have so much to work with and you want to make sure it ends up on the screen and not, you know, not off the edges. And I mean, his sets were so great. You wanted to shoot every inch of them. Yeah, and the detail was extraordinary and the paint work was extraordinary. And this also, uh, the original sound that was laid over this was just so brutal. I think it was uh, knives into meat. It just got a little overboard, so we toned it down a bit. And then here's the moment where, uh, where her eyes change from striker-controlled blue back to her ordinary brown, and you kind of realize that she was probably just some housewife that Stryker <laughs> kidnapped and is now using for this evil... Uh, but one of the great images right there. It was kind of, yeah, this is very important to me when we're mixing the sound. I, I wanted it to be like clunk, and I and it never. The first two passes, they never got the sound effect right, and I kept saying, saying, no, it it has to be like you've dropped one of your dumbbells in the bathtub and it lands on the floor, and they did it, and you know, and that was sort of the concept, you know, from the beginning that would I think be kind of sickly funny. I needed to find a way to get rid of uh, all the uh, all the soldiers in a quick, efficient manner. And uh, Dan and Mike delivered this idea to me, and I will be forever grateful. Bye, soldiers. Power of magnetism. Once the set got blown up, there was no putting it back, so we had to be sure we had all we needed down that hallway. And this is where things get tricky, because a lot of characters' geographies, where they are at, any, at a given moment, are, are, are actually some of the most difficult uh, challenges in, in trying to keep that all juggled so it makes some sense and some continuity. I think it's one of the most difficult tasks uh, in terms of script development and shooting. And then juggling it all in the editing room. I do believe a film is written three times. Once on the page, once on the set, and finally in the editing room. And you really have to set, uh, provide yourself with the best material that you can, but at the same time not be afraid to move things about. his last shot of the show. I think this was their last shot of the show. Yeah. Oh, no, no, actually, theirs would be in Kananaskis. This is, uh, this is right near where they had the G8 summit uh, a couple of years ago. And I asked for George Bush's room, George W. Bush's room at the hotel. So they gave it to me, and it wasn't very nice, so I switched rooms. Kananaskis is in Alberta, and... Canadian Rockets. Not that far from Calgary.
again, this is uh, Magneto's helmet. You know, you have these devices, these 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 costumes, and they uh, from the comic, and you. you they're not there just because that's what the characters wear in the comic. I believe, at least, you have to find some purpose for them. In the uniforms, whether it's when the darts hit Cyclops in the chest, you see they protect them, or the helmet to protect, uh, as, as Magneto says, to protect him from the real bad guys. You know, all these different uh, costumes, dressing, and design need, for me at least as a filmmaker, to have some kind of purpose. So uh, I strive to sort of find that in, the, in developing a script. It's particularly hard in that when you have a you know an ensemble of superheroes, because every one of them has different powers, every one of them has different uh, capabilities, and so you always have to be sort of second guessing any scene you're writing or executing. It's for the well, why didn't he just do whatever their particular power is? Because so many of them can do so many things. And this is something Dan and Mike brought that I. To the to the story that was uh, uh, very significant to me personally is this is this reversal of uh, of Cerebro and and the betrayal of Magneto, uh, which ultimately enabled Magneto to be uh, more uh, you know to to continue and 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 maintain his status as a villain, which I felt that there was no way I could have him simply be a good guy. There had to be some ulterior aspect to his. Uh, to his character, otherwise he ceases to be Magneto and becomes, you know, in the comic, for instance, when Magneto's wandering the Savage Lands with uh, with Xavier, which is, that's a different story, and that's, you know, this keeps him badass and cool. Originally, uh, Wolverine was not going to drive his claws through Stryker, but uh, I asked him to do it, and he, they were a little reticent to do it at first, but then I said, it'll look, it'll give Brian Cox something to play. And then he said, and that made it. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and, 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 when Wal and when Hugh said, you know, actually did the scene for the first time and said, how does it... How's it feel, bub? I really, you know, that made it great because he was sort of saying, you know, how does it feel to have metal in you? Not so hot. Harks back to my favorite line in the first film, which is, you know, the, when Rogue asks Wolverine, when they come out, does it hurt? And he says every time. Again, this was a shot actually later to establish some more geography. This is actually a model, or you're seeing parts of it. It's a massive model about 60 feet long and 25, 30 feet high that was built in Van Nuys uh, of the dam. And uh, I was you know, there when they shot the, uh, uh, the thing first coming down, and they dump about 10,000 gallons of water in about two and a half seconds. And it all sort of washes out into the parking lot. And they pump it back up for take two. It's one of the funny things when we talk about miniatures. Sometimes they can be like that, 60 feet. Mm -hmm. And only miniature in relation to what a real dam yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> well, water. It's very difficult to do water. 
One of the keys to doing really good visual effects is understanding the uh, advantages and the limitations of CGI, so knowing when you're working in a 2D world or a 3D world or a CGI world or a And to combine those world. as much as possible, you know, combining miniatures with CGI, with real things, uh, so that, there's, that you're constantly being blurred. A Nightcrawler's Tale is my favorite example because there's many times when it's real and there's many times when it's not, and as long as you just keep it fluid. But yes, water has become the most challenging thing. Even Lord of the Rings, uh, the scene in the, the second picture, was a, a, a template, and, and we needed to you know, look at that closely to see where water looked, uh, you know, where it, it looked uh, real and where it looked miniature and try to you know, improve upon that. <laughs> That's an insert that was <laughs> shot in London, I think, or now L.A. Yes, you know? now London. Yeah, we didn't have many pickups. We had only about. Uh, we don't call them. We don't call them reshoots. We call them pickups. Reshoots imply we didn't do it right the first time. Right. So I call them pickups, where we grab little bits and pieces we didn't have before, and we did that. Uh, we did about a couple of days, a few days, I think two in London and. Uh, it is two true. I mean, we didn't States. reshoot anything. Oh, yeah. We did a couple pickups for little, sort of, things like that to show how we got his hands out. You know, and uh, then occasionally, like a half a scene here or there, but um, but ultimately, because a lot of you find with a lot of these big films, a lot of stuff does get flipped to the end, and they end up with weeks of pickups. And we not only don't have the money for that, we don't really have the time for it. So we try to shoot pretty economically. This scene came from when we were when we were rehearsing it. We realized that you know, Jim Marsden said, "I've never met this guy before." I mean, I don't even know who he, who he is in the movie. And I'm like, "Well, you should ask him then," and then. And you should answer the way you always answer. <laughs> I am the incredible nightcrawler. And uh, so that's how that moment came about. It's a hard thing with an ensemble, is you know, you, it's. Well, you forget. You yeah. forget. You're like, wait a minute, these people haven't met, and you, and you know, and you can take it for granted and say, well, right. they're X Men. You know, they're they're all mutants. They're all there. But you can't say that. You have to really uh, imagine that they're really in this world, and it's real, and to as much of a degree as you can. This was originally going to be a much more involved scene, but uh, genuinely through trying to diminish the budget and put the money elsewhere, uh, instead of creating a bunch of illusions and a bunch of elaborate stuff, we, uh, I went for something more simple. And, uh, and ultimately, I'm very happy with it, very elegant, and using, again, lighting to uh, create a cold, dead blue space for this girl to exist in. I think this was the day. I had to pay her five bucks. <laughs> uh, the, the concept was that 143 is projecting images to, um, to, in different ways to different people. So he can create illusions, but they're, they're specific to different people's minds and the way they interpret things. The scene is interesting out, out there with... Uh, uh, with um, Mystique, she's, she was already on the uh, Robert De Niro picture, and she had worked a very long day, got on a plane, flew up to the Canadian Rockies, was put into six hours of makeup, and then stood there practically naked in 15-degree uh, weather, so, and then got right back on a plane, and not a single complaint. She is a princess and a fantastically tolerant woman, Rebecca Stamos. 
This is, that's actually not the wash of the helicopter. That's actually wind that was coming across the lake, and we were waiting, and we shot so much film just to get the right moments so that we'd catch a moment of uh, snow blowing up, and uh, of real wind blowing real snow, well, our snow that we brought in, up uh, onto Pyro's face to match the helicopter wash. The wind there was so strong. I mean, there was a day when you could literally stand on the edge of sort of a cliff and lean over the cliff, and the wind would hold you up. And the, and the park rangers made us leave the set at one point because there was a threat that trees would blow down on top of us. Stop it! <laughs> the idea here is uh, sort of cold is breaking them out of it. And, uh, originally there was a scene where they were talking about hypothermia and how it affects the mind. and. Uh, I never shot it, but it was kind of neat. There was an argument between Pyro and, and uh, Iceman. And once the set is, you know, it's funny, once the Cerebro set is dumped down, you know, is, is aged, can't reverse it. Once it's iced, can't reverse it. So, you know, we had to make sure we shot what yeah. we needed and then moved on to the next phase of shooting. And that's, you know, because you have to keep shooting. You have to always be thinking about, you know, you can't just say, okay, now we're going to do a shot where it's all ice. And it says, okay, well, it's six hours for us to cover it all in ice. And it's like, you have, that all has to be planned out ahead of time. This was kind of a sad moment. Originally, there was an extra shot of debris falling on top of poor Mutant 143, but I kind of cut it because I felt it was just insult to injury. Again, another victim of, uh, you know, another mutant victim of circumstance. This was also difficult. How do you move Patrick Stewart, who's yeah. meant to be in a wheelchair, through a set very quickly? An action scene with a paraplegic. I can't believe that worked. Yeah, that's a real... <laughs> that shot was added. Way late in the process. The, the water coming down the tunnel yeah, is a water. testament to some really good visual effects work because that is really hard to And make, done really quickly. He breathed in smoke there, too. It's again, yeah. it was like when Stephen Baldwin got the the lighter flicked in his eye and usual suspects, and he, he was choking on the smoke, and it made the, just those little moments are, you know, important to use. This was also uh, challenging to have all that water pressure up behind those doors on a set which could be easily destroyed by too much water you yeah, know so again fake yeah. and barely painted and get easily destroyed with uh, you get you get flooding. one shot at these things all artificial snow yep. Um, originally, they were going to come up, and Stryker was going to be dead there, uh, killed by Magneto. But we wanted to have another scene between Wolverine and Stryker, where he kind of, you know, kind of cuts loose his ties, his need for Stryker. So there was nothing there, but it created a nice form for all the X-Men to be standing there—a nice X-Men moment in the snow. And uh, uh, Decision was really, you know, even though the film is, it takes place a lot at night in a lot of dark, uh, uh, confined locations, it was nice to be able to bring it out like this and actually use the great Northwest uh, up in the Canadian Rockies. You know, we've got these incredible uh, environments 
and it's so much of part of the uh, the Wolverine lore that to not take advantage of it would have been uh, criminal. We built a piece of the X-Jet there, the, the leg of the X-Jet, and then extended some of it digitally. And then here's that moment. And it's nice, too, also to create frames with these characters, like that one, of the lone Wolverine with the boy standing, you know, the trees. And, and you know, you're not just getting trees, uh, you know, outside in, in the Los Angeles, you know, in Santa Monica Mountains. You're actually, you know, getting trees very specific to, North, you know, Western Canada. And when I, when I was a film student at School of Visual Arts in New York, I, uh, uh, Wes Craven came and brought in um, uh, some scenes from a film he was making, which was the first Nightmare on Elm Street film. And, and I never forgot, he explained that, uh, you know, he, 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 he put thousands of gallons of blood in a giant rotating room shooting out of a bed, and the audience goes, oh. And then he spent $13 on a latex tongue that pops out of a telephone receiver, and the audience flipped out. So you never know uh, where... Uh, you know, where the best, you know, the biggest impact's going to come. So with uh, Artie's tongue, it's a nice moment where, where it's kind of inspired by that, where he, uh, you know, we, we actually built a small latex tongue. And in the museum, he sticks it out, sticks it out to the little girl. But when we came time to shoot it at the end, when he was sticking it out at Stryker, someone took the latex tongue and drove away with it. And it was with all the practical effects people in a motorcade of trucks on its way back to Vancouver and I literally was like get a helicopter to drop down on top of that truck and get that tongue ultimately I think the CG tongue works just as well this is also a moment where you realize nobody's asked where pyro is you know and they have to acknowledge it you know and we're on the set we're shooting and uh, and uh, and you know I said you know you gotta we gotta have this moment so Wolverine simply asks the question. Jean Grey has the awareness, and she answers it. And it's making sure that logic is maintained. Oh no, we've lost the power. It's coming, Mom. Interesting, you know, what's uh, about to happen here? The Jean's sacrifice. Uh, something I decided to do uh, during shooting, as I mentioned earlier, around and and then told it to actually to Famka about a month after. Uh, I made the decision, and and we were able to keep it uh, relatively secret by publishing drafts of the script with her surviving, always, and never actually creating any draft of the script except for 30 pages which were sent in separate envelopes uh, of the actual ending to the studio um, as private deliveries. So because there was never a script that existed with the... Uh, with Jean's death, uh, it, it just never became part of a conversation. And the few journalists that did know about it, who were on set, were really wonderful about keeping it, uh, keeping it confidential. And it, it managed to maintain its mystery and not be spoken about right up until release. Uh, we also did a stunt at the end. You'll see them all in the Oval Office together. We, we took photographs. We actually dressed uh, 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 Jean up in her full... Uh, uniform and brought her into the Oval Office for some photographs that were done uh, for trading cards and for other publicity purposes to to dissuade the audience from uh, thinking that she wasn't going to make it until the very end. 
I think we shot it once too, where she apologized to the president for being a little late. For being late, yes, yes. I think that might even be on this DVD. Is it? Yeah, you'll see that. <laughs> um. So uh, now. She said uh, she couldn't find a place to park the X jet. Then the Wolverine's like, "I saved a place over for you." And then she stoops down because ultimately James Marsden is much shorter than anyone thinks, and we have him on uh, always on stilts and risers, so that no, Wolverine no, no, doesn't no, no, appear no, no, no. so tall. Oh, Famke is very tall. Oh, that's true, much taller than we realize. Now, there's a, a lot of people hassle me because they ask, well, why Storm doesn't create a funnel cloud and uh, and, and bring up the water? Or, um, Ice, Ice Man doesn't stop it with ice, and ultimately. Ultimately, some of that is, uh, is, is articulated here when Nightcrawler uh, goes out to save her right here, and, uh, and she won't let him. There, and it's also in the fact that it's just such a volume of water and uh, such force, and, uh, and there's such energy uh, being exchanged that that's not really what the scene's about. I mean, it's true Iceman says he can do a lot more than freeze a teacup, and ultimately he does. But this is, I always found that, or felt that this was something far beyond that. And then there's also the notion of her sacrifice, which is something that has, uh, that, that, that's, that's more analogous to, let's say, what happens to Obi-Wan Kenobi, where he allows himself to be basically killed by Darth Vader uh, and, and, and returns in a, in, a, in a different, more inspirational form. I can't say it's identical to that, but it's more like that. She, she's in control of this action. She is there, you know, to save them, and, and, and that is her purpose, and that is... And, and, and her sacrifice is part of that. Um, but ultimately, as far as the Iceman and Storm of it all, there's just, uh, you know, there's just so much water that uh, only her expanding power, only what she is becoming, uh, is enough. No! No! It's interesting, a lot of, you know, people talk about the gay allegory in the picture, and yet, you know, an, an entire Christian audience is, I don't know what they're talking about. Clearly the message of this film is a, is a Christian message. I mean, look at the evolution of Nightcrawler and, and the 23rd Psalm and all this. So it's, it's, it, it, the film has different uh, meanings for different groups of people, I think, and, and that's part of the fun of, the, uh, of, of a film like this, and I think that's why, you know, the X-Men universe has uh, survived and been popular for 40 years because it speaks to it speaks to everyone on so, uh, on one level or another I mean it's ultimately a, a, a plea for tolerance and an end to discrimination and that's something that can apply to anything religion philosophy sexuality politics That's Dave Fabrizio, lead Secret Service guy, and also a friend of mine. Oh, that's the back of his head. <laughs> that's da actually, that's Dave Fabrizio. Mr. President, we're live in five. My fellow Americans, in this time of adversity, we are being offered a moment. A moment to recognize a growing threat within our own population, 
and take a unique role in the shape of human events. Some people are confused by what Xavier's doing. Does, is he stopping time? And I, you know, as you see in the, in, when he freezes everyone in the museum, there's someone still on the cell phone. The TVs are still going. Uh, here, when he, he freezes everyone, um, you know, there's still, there's still life. Things are still happening. The X-Men get in, they get out. Uh, but ultimately, you know, transmission of TV is shut off, which is in, indicated by the, uh, the light going off and the system going down. And, um, and again, as, as, as was said earlier in the film, when they invade Stryker's base, there's some kind of electrical interference. Isn't the power thing from Storm, though? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. Actually, it was from our dimmer board, but <laughs> my electrical my electrical crew works very closely with Storm. These are the mimes again, those wacky mimes. I love the one with the pen in his mouth. He looks like Steve Tobolowsky. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> How did you get this? Well, let's just say I know a little girl who can walk through walls. You know, it's fun for an audience that isn't paying much attention. It's, it's sort of, they kind of let it go that the mutants have sort of extraordinary powers to stop time or read thoughts or heal people. But if, but if you're, you are paying attention, they're, they're very quite, they are quite, quite uh, articulated. You know, Xavier is psychic. He can control people. Um, Storm controls the weather. Wolverine heals, Rogue can take your power. And here what's nice is uh, some of the younger characters that were introduced in the first film, Rogue and Bobby, kind of graduate in this scene and become X-Men, and finally have those uniforms they were asking about earlier in the picture. The death of Jean was nice here because it wasn't simply a repeat of the first film where, you know, there's a device, a doomsday, and the, the, the humanity saved, these kinds of things but ultimately there was another dimension to what's happening, a, a loss. Uh, and, 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 and now where Wolverine's search for his past was a genesis into a, a second film, perhaps this loss and its impact serves as a genesis into, into a third picture. So time hasn't actually stopped. What's happened is since the people have stopped and the power was shut off, X-Men can get in, they can get out, and now everybody's released from their control and wondering what the hell happened. And yes. if I was the president, I would be screaming, get me security! Yeah. <laughs> Launch the missiles! <laughs> That's actually a shot of Via Bamfi from X-Men 1. Again, we used because we didn't have the money to get new ones. It's funny, we, in these X-Men movies, we use like five different mansions per movie. Yeah. This scene uh, came from a need to, uh, I, I, I wanted to articulate, uh, explore more about Gene's sacrifice and ultimately, you know, give some sense of hope. And uh, it was shot later in, actually we shot this in Shepperton Studios in London because um, Hugh Jackman doing, was doing Van Helsing in Prague and we couldn't get him out for, uh, with the exception of one day. So we, we all flew to London 
to shoot this. And it was really, we had a, a really wonderful time. And we kind of, uh, kind of rewrote the scene on the spot that morning, all of us together, uh, so much so that Patrick Stewart took the, uh, our final script page that we, we came up with and we all signed it as a piece of commemorative history. And uh, ultimately, I'm very, very happy with it. It's a warm, a warm scene, and I think uh, gives us a sense of the future. Now, if you see Wolverine's hair is a little big there, it's because he's got hair extensions for Van Helsing, and he had to shove them all under a wig. But I shouldn't even point that out. Uh, another thing uh, uh, I wanted to do with the scene, besides show some, some open closure, so to speak, uh, regarding Gene between uh, uh, Cyclops and Wolverine was also to show that things were back to normal. The ex, uh, ex-kids were back, you know, back at the mansion. School was back in session, and, uh, and we were trying to think of what, uh, of what the lesson should be. And, uh, and then I thought it would only be fitting that it would be uh, about the once and future king. And then, and then once again, reminding the audience uh, of the relationship between Xavier and Magneto, and that they're both still alive, still out there, doing their thing. And then as we return uh, back to Alkali Lake, which is now busted wide open and expanded across the forest because of the, uh, the ruptured dam, you know, we... Uh, we see something in the water, and uh, you know, for fans, they know what they're looking at. They know they know the comic book lore, but even for a, a non-fan or someone who hasn't even seen the first X-Men picture, it's you know, it, it's it's not important that they that be delineated or be specific. It's just important that it be seen. Are you happy with it? With what? The movie. Oh, yeah, happier than the, the, I was with the first. The first picture. We had a lot of limitations in the schedule and in and having to provide a lot and in money and, and also in having to provide so much exposition with X-Men 1. Where, so where it had mo a lot of moments and things in it and characters that I, I liked a lot, it wasn't completely the film I, I, I really would have wanted to make. This is much closer to that. You know, there's still things I would have liked to have done, but uh, you know. are you happy with it? Uh, yeah, I think we've really, I think it's, it's, Evolution. I think we've evolved character-wise, story-wise. I'm not quite sure why you want the next one to be a musical. Here. Well, Hugh Jackman, you know, for those of you who don't know, is a um, is a baritone and quite a brilliant baritone. Before X Men One, he was playing Curly in Oklahoma in a stage production in London. And uh, you know, I mean, what do you think about that? I'm 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 excited about it. I, I've I've always felt that there's sort of a a rhythmic musical underpinning to the X-Men franchise. In particular, if you go back and look at the comics, they they always sang out to me. Well, well. I, 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 I the idea of bringing Rob Marshall in for the choreography. I I, I don't know if. I'm well, you've totally seen in agreement with. I, I did see Chicago, but I, I, I think you're really underestimating your own capacity for choreography. No, and, no, no. I, uh, well, I thought it was tremendous. I just, I, 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 I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the X line dance. Well, it's not like it's, it's, it's anything we haven't seen before. It's true. It, it maybe. 
Maybe musical really isn't the right thing, you know? Well, you know, Cabaret wasn't exactly a musical. It was sort of a movie with music in it. Uh, it, it kind of, you know, I think if you look at that as a template, it's kind of a... It's kind of a... It's true. I mean, it, Alan was in Cabaret, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And, you know, actually, if you look at Dan and Mike's writing, and it, it could be sung. Oh, I completely agree. I, I, I found myself... I found myself singing it right back to them every day. <laughs> what? How does it feel to know you're not one of a kind with adamantium flowing through your brain? So, um, so this is well. This was fun because, yeah. uh, particularly because uh, because of uh, our working history. Tom and I, you wouldn't know it, but we we we. We sometimes look for commercials to do together just because we don't get to see each other enough on the movies. So we we uh, find opportunities to do stuff together in between pictures while uh, you know he's in between movies and I'm developing material. And we like hanging out together, but when you can hang out together and get paid for it, it's just that much sweeter. Mm -hmm. And actually, we've had a lot of fun on commercials trying out new things that sometimes we bring into the films or sometimes we realize we shouldn't bring into the films. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's funny. It's a, a process, our, our, our working relationship, because it has literally come to a uh, a silent language of finger pointing, and and uh, it's all about the slow creep. Yeah. You know, we you know, in the first film, it's uh, very important to point out actually that, that mm -hmm. the first film was actually my first film shot with anamorphic lenses, uh, the first X Men, and although it gave a strong negative and was good for visual effects, um, and it, anamorphic is when you actually shoot uh, you shoot the film into a squunched, like a squeezed-in format on the film, and then it's expanded later um, into the 235 uh, 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 format. format. And this time we went back to Super 35, which was what we uh, used for the usual suspects and apt pupil, and what that provided us was ability to shoot in lower light situations or to do more uh, And also, to, there was a, um, you know, unusual suspects. We had a very small budget. We had a very limited schedule. And one of the ways that we were able to keep it very much alive and have a lot of uh, movement into it was by um, creating a combination of uh, a dolly and a zoom to have this sort of subtle movement that was floating through a scene. We had 22 pages in the office. Um, where where uh, Kaiser Soze is being, or Kevin Spacey's character is being interrogated. And that was a technique that we used very successfully, I thought, to, to keep movement, to have subtle movement, elegant movement that didn't overcome the, the story and what was going on. And we used it, again, in App Pupil, and m maybe, in a way, doing the first X-Men, where we, we did everything on a dolly or crane or whatever, and we didn't use the zoom as much, uh, or these subtle, slow moves in, was a good way to sort of take a step back and realize that you know we didn't need to rely on it quite as much, and then going into uh, X2, bringing it back in and, and letting you really you know punctuate those moments, I thought was uh, was liberating again, and and, uh, and also I, we can do complex masters too, yeah. so we can ha you know by having a zoom lens, all of a sudden you can move the camera from a wide mm -hmm. scene over here to a tighter composition over there, and then and and then cut into that and cut it up. We're, and it creates the illusion that we had the camera in more places, yeah, you know, and it did more setups than we actually needed to do in a, in a given uh, amount of time. So again, we could shoot much more flexibly, and 
and aggressively. Yeah, I think the difference between anamorphic Super 35 its formats is getting less and less and uh, more indistinguishable than it once was some years ago. But I think the uh, widescreen, you know, for especially when you have an ensemble film like X-Men, is so useful because it, rather than relying on cuts, you know, you can put people in all different areas of the frame. You can really use the space and the geography, and I think that's something that uh, was pretty successful here. I think the next film we're going to demand uh, digital inter intermediate through the whole film so you can have the more f more flexibility in treating the film. We did some digital intermediate stuff here where you, you transfer to digital and then you know you can you know, f fix different problems, bring up certain things, alter color, uh, even yeah. finesse the look of an actor or actress who's a bit tired <laughs> that the fact, morning. The fact that, that an audience is watching this movie now is a miracle considering how little time we had in post-production to... Uh, do something which, you know, a film which had almost 900 visual effects when we started. Oh, probably in the end it had probably over 1,000. Yeah, uh, out of, you know, 3,500 shots. And when we started uh, uh, doing the color correction for this film and had barely over a week to do it, we were still missing 450 shots. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing that we were able to get this done on time and, and the film also the had the, the well it's in many theaters the film had the widest release of a film on a single day or in a single 72 hour period in history in, about, in, the, world. About, in the world in about 90 countries uh, simultaneously which was about 10 11,000 theaters and so it was a real testament to aggressive post-production but next time around we'll uh, not we'll have do to work the weekends stuff. at the lab <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we'll shoot digitally yet yeah no I don't know I gotta talk to George about you that you never know